Section 28 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Rudolf Virchow, Part 3. At almost every turn, medicine has been powerfully assisted by the sciences, which should rather be termed correlative than subsidiary. Notable among them is chemistry. The isolation of the active principles of medicinal plants, such as morphine, quinine, strychnine, and cocaine, has been a remarkable service rendered by chemistry to medicine. How should we be handicapped if we still had to fight malarial disease with the crude Peruvian bark instead of its chief alkaloid, quinine? And how impracticable, if not impossible, would it be to render the eye insensitive to pain with any extract of coca leaves, no matter how concentrated? A purpose we accomplish almost instantly with cocaine. Of minor importance, perhaps, but not to be despised, is the resulting liberation from the old slavery to bulky and nauseous drugs. The isolation of active principles long antedated the synthetical preparations, but the latter came at last. The marvelous array of hypnotics, anodynes, and fever quellers that are now at our command, largely coal tar products. But it is not pure chemistry alone that we are indebted for the elegant dosing of the present day. Progressive pharmacy, with its tablets, its coated pills, and its capsules, has put to shame the old-time purveyor of galenicals. Right jauntily do we now take our soda mint in case of slight derangement of the stomach, happily oblivious of its vile prototype, the old rhubarb and soda mixture. Even castor oil has been stripped of its repulsiveness by the combinations which the soda water fountain affords. It was but a step, we can now realize, from the employment of isolated vegetable principles to that of preparations of certain glandular organs of the animal economy. But the doctrine of internal secretions had to intervene, and evolution took its time. Not till toward the close of the century did the venerable Brown Sequard lead up to it. We have not yet come to eye of newt and toe of frog, but what we have incorporated into modern therapeutics in the way of animal products lends at least some theoretical justification to the ancient use of the dried organs of various animals. It is but a few years since the ductless glands, such organs as, for example, the thyroid gland, an organ situated in the front of the neck, a small affair in its normal state, but prominent and even pendulous when by its permanent enlargement it comes to constitute a goiter, were looked upon as puzzles, as structures destitute of any known function. Some observers even affirmed that they had no function, though the constancy of goiter in cretins ought to have shown the fallacy of this allegation in the case of the thyroid. We do not now need to be told that the thyroid gland plays a very important part in the economy, for we know that its surgical removal gives rise to a special disease known as myoxoedema, which in addition to its physical manifestations is characterized by impairment of the mental powers. Consequently, this ductless gland, a gland that is to say which has no obvious canal by which it throws off any product of its activity, must elaborate some material that is necessary to the health of the organism and is imparted to the blood. That material, whatever it may be, is termed an internal secretion. Some of the internal secretions have turned out to be of singular value medicinally. It is apparently not the ductless glands alone that furnish internal secretions. The glands that are provided with ducts and yield a definite and observable product secrete also a substance, perhaps more than one, which they give up to the blood. 
Prominent among the therapeutic advances of the century is the direct reduction of the high temperature of sunstroke and certain fevers by the use of cold. Although foreshadowed by Curie early in the century by his use of cold effusion in the treatment of scarlet fever, it did not come into general use until the closing decades. It is employed principally in typhoid fever on the theory that a condition of high fever is in itself a source of danger quite distinct from the other injurious effects of a febrile disease. On the other hand, the employment of high degrees of heat has of late been shown to be a potent agency in the treatment of certain forms of disease, notably in various affections classed as rheumatic. Applications of very hot air, provided it is thoroughly dry, are borne without serious discomfort, and their employment promises to be of greater service in the conditions in which it is resorted to than that of any other agent. A revelation in the treatment of heart disease has been effected by the Baud-Nauheim system of effervescent baths and resisted exercises. It is not only functional disorders of the heart that are relieved, but grave organic diseases also. Somewhat elaborate explanations of the way in which the treatment proves beneficial have been given, but they are not altogether satisfactory. Thus far, we have dealt chiefly with those developments of medicine that seem to have been the outgrowth of much thought and experiment, but there was one that can hardly be viewed as other than a happy discovery, yet it was one that was fraught with unspeakable mitigation of human suffering, and that wrought a boundless extension of the field of surgery. It was that of anesthesia. The first to discover an efficient surgical anesthetic was Crawford W. Long of Georgia. It has been established that he performed several minor operations with the patient anesthetized with sulfuric ether, but he did not proclaim his discovery, and so it was reserved for William T.G. Morton of Boston, then a dentist, but subsequently a physician, to make the first public demonstration of the efficiency of ether as an anesthetic, which he did in the operating theater of the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston in the year 1846. The news of Morton's achievement spread broadcast, and it was at once realized that it was destined to revolutionize surgery. It certainly has done that, and in no less degree than was afterward accomplished by Listerism. Ether did not long remain the only anesthetic known. Simpson of Edinburgh soon discovered that chloroform was possessed of even more decided anesthetic properties. The inhalation of ether is disagreeable, and it is slow in producing the desired effect, whereas that of chloroform is not unpleasant, and it acts more rapidly. Consequently, chloroform soon came to be generally preferred, but abundant experience has finally shown that ether is the much safer agent of the two, and improved methods of administration have almost entirely done away with the objections to its use, so that now it is looked upon as the preferable general anesthetic. But general anesthesia, meaning the suspension of sensibility in the whole organism inducing unconsciousness, is not always necessary, and sometimes it is undesirable. We have now trustworthy local anesthetics, the chief of which is cocaine, wherewith we are able to anesthetize the parts you operated on without rendering the patient unconscious. And the cooperation that a conscious patient may be able to render is sometimes valuable. It was not alone in the direct saving of human suffering that anesthetics proved a boon to the world. They have made possible an amount of experimental work on animals in the way of vivisection that humane investigators would otherwise have shrunk from necessary as it has been and still is for the advancement of the healing art. The operation of ovariotomy, first performed by Ephraim McDowell of Kentucky, 
can hardly be classed with the happy accidents, but so little has been said about it or thought concerning it that when the news of it reached Europe from the wilds of America, the editor of a ponderous English quarterly journal of medicine recorded his incredulity with the words, Credat judoesis non ego. An ovarian tumor inevitably proves fatal in the long run if it is not removed. In a certain percentage of cases, it is malignant and will kill whether it is removed or not. But the general result of ovariotomy has been the saving of thousands of women from untimely death. Bell of Edinburgh had imagined the operation and had mentioned it in his lectures, but nonetheless to McDowell is due the credit of demonstrating its feasibility. Medicine bore quite its full share in the mitigation of the horrors and hardships of war that marked the 19th century. Its work was shown in the great reduction of pestilential disease incident to camp life, in prompt aid to the wounded, in the establishment of salubrious field and general hospitals, and in improved methods of transportation of the sick and wounded. Certainly the soldier on the sick list never before had such a fair prospect of rejoining his comrades safe and sound as he has now. In the care of the insane, too, care not only in the sense of humane treatment, but in the systematic employment of measures for their restoration to mental soundness, the century has been marked by notable progress. This has been chiefly in the direction of preventing insanity, and although mental disease is said to be on the increase, it may undoubtedly be said with entire truth that its growing prevalence is not in proportion to the heightened frequency of the strenuous life. We may confidently expect that a more pronounced mastery over diseases of the mind will come when physicians in general are taught psychiatry clinically, so that the beginnings of mental alienation may be intelligently met by the family practitioner. The supreme achievement of the medicine of the 19th century undoubtedly has been the development of its preventative feature. When we recall the fact that but a few years ago an attack of infectious disease was interpreted as a visitation of providence by a perversity that even the triumphs of vaccination did not serve to do away with, when we contemplate the well-ordered and well-understood measures that are now resorted to in an ever-increasing number of communities, and resorted to not solely on the outbreak of an epidemic, but at all times, to purify the air we breathe, the food we eat, and the water we drink, and when we reflect upon the greatly reduced morbidity as well as mortality of most infectious diseases, we must realize the immense service that has been rendered by preventative medicine. No doubt we must all die sometime, and the day is yet far remote when the only causes of death will be old age and injury, but a decided prolongation of the average lifetime, such as the life insurance companies recognize, is an unquestionable gain to the human race. A great blessing that has been brought about in great measure by medical men has been the establishment of the profession of nursing. The work of caring for the sick between the physician's visits is no longer, at least in large communities and in the cases of severe illness, left to oversympathetic and uninstructed relatives, or to outsiders who traded on mystery. An intelligent and intelligible record is now kept of all important happenings in the sick room. Remedies are administered as they were ordered. Needless alarm at something deemed by the patient to be of ill omen is quelled, and in the case of real emergency, overlooked as it might otherwise have been, the physician is summoned to meet it. The advent of the trained nurse marked an era in medicine. The literature of medicine has fully kept pace in volume with the progress of the art itself, and its quality has steadily improved. 
To this, the great tomes of that gigantic work, the Index Catalog of the Library of the Surgeon General's Office, United States Army, bear solid testimony. It is a consolidated catalog by subjects and by authors' names of practically every medical book published throughout the world and of every article in the periodical literature of medicine. For its existence, the world is indebted to Dr. John S. Billings, formerly a surgeon of high rank in the Army and now the director of the New York Public Library, and for its continued existence to the United States government. And it is to be hoped that Congress will never cease to provide adequately for its continued publication. Its completeness and its accuracy long ago led to its being prized everywhere. There are some problems of which medicine has hardly yet entered upon the solution. Prominent among them is that of cancer. Little as we now know of the real nature of that disease, we know quite as much of it as we knew but a few years ago concerning other diseases equally destructive and far more prevalent, which, however, we have now practically mastered. Who can say that we shall not triumph over cancer while the 20th century is still young? Our final triumph is indubitable. The strongest individuality in the medicine of the 19th century was, without a doubt, that of Rudolf Ludwig Karl Virchow, commonly written by him, simply Rudolf Virchow. Although he took no direct part in any of the striking advances in practice that appealed to the laity, yet he was recognized the world over, among all classes of educated and well-informed persons, as the one beacon light of 19th century medicine whose glow had been the steadiest and the most enduring. This is because of the wide range of his learning in matters not pertaining closely to his profession. His professional brethren hold the same view, and this is because he so well controlled himself, checked himself at every turn by the severest application of system, that he continued for more than half a century an anchor to hold medical thought strictly down to fact. This was from no natural lack of volatility, for he was an Ocht und Verzeiger, 48er. In 1846, as a prosector in the University of Berlin, Virchow entered with Reinhardt upon a series of pathological investigations which at once received wide attention. In conjunction with Reinhardt, he found the Archive für Pathologie, Anatomie und Psychologie und für Klinische Medizin a periodical familiarly called Virchow's Archive, the publication of which was begun in the year 1847. Reinhardt died in 1852, leaving the editorship in the hands of Virchow alone, and he was still its editor up to the time of his death on September 5, 1902. In consequence of his having openly proclaimed himself a Democrat in 1848, Virchow was forced to retire from the University of Berlin in the following year. He was at once made a professor in the University of Würzburg, whence seven years later in 1856, as a result of the strenuous interposition of various medical organizations, he was recalled to Berlin, where he was made a professor and director of the Pathological Institute. He was appointed medical privy counselor in 1874, having several years before that entered upon an active political career and been one of the founders of the Progressive Party, which he ably represented in the Landtag and the Reichstag. In 1869, he took part in founding the German and Berlin Anthropological Societies, of each of which he was several times president. Virchow investigated the most diverse subjects, as his profound studies of Schliemann's discoveries, as well as other archaeological researches show, and he was a rather prolific writer. 
The most important of his early works was Dicellular Pathologie, the first edition of which was published in 1858. Chance's English translation appeared in 1860, and Picard's French version came out in 1861. It is safe to say that no book of the century exerted a profounder influence on medical thought than Virchow's exposition of the cellular pathology. His next notable publication was a collection of 30 lectures on tumors, Die Krankhaften Geschulfest, Berlin, 1863-67. To say that he was not too absorbed in these lectures to bring his great powers to bear upon the topics of the day is shown by the fact that before their publication was completed, he brought out his work on Trinity, Darstellung der Lehr von den Trichinen, 1864. Old age found him with industry and versatility unabated, for it was in 1892 that his Crania Ethnica Americana appeared, and after that time he wrote a vigorous protest against the new-fangled spelling of German language, which he accused the schoolmasters of trying to foist on the people. This was published in his archive. It may well be that his arguments have not been unavailing, since it is observable that several German publications that had adopted the new spelling have now dropped it. It must not be supposed that it was by his literary work alone, founded though it was manifestly on his profound study, that Virchow impressed his personality upon medicine. It was in his lectures and in his laboratory teaching, too, that he made himself felt. In all civilized countries, there are many devoted workers in medical science who caught their first real inspiration from Virchow. The writer once saw Virchow. Only once, but it was a sight never to be forgotten. It was at a banquet given as one of the festivities incident to the annual meeting of the British Medical Association in London, 1873. The company was not a large one, but it included such celebrities as Professor J. Burden Sanderson, Sir William Jenner, Professor Chaveau, and Professor Mary. Virchow was conspicuously the man toward whom the eyes of all others were oftenest directed. Virchow met with the love as well as the admiration of his contemporaries, and both sentiments will descend to their successors, for his impress on the records of medicine is indelible, both as an instructor and as a friend of all real truth-seekers. Authorities There is no full and connected account of the progress of medicine during the 19th century, but the reader may consult with profit the various medical biographies, also the following works. Silliman's A Century of Medicine and Chemistry Jenner's The Practical Medicine of Today, Buck's Reference Handbook of the Medical Sciences, Uhlenberg's Real Encyclopedie der Gesamten Heilkunde and Anus Medicus, published in The Lancet at the close of each year, and Tinker's America's Contributions to Surgery, Bulletin of the Johns Hopkins Hospital, August to September 1902. End of Section 28 End of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord.